<clears throat> as Scott mentioned at the beginning, uh, most of us have spent the last day and a half or so together at our annual core group retreat in Seeker Springs. Always grateful for that time that our Father gives us as a family of believers, servant missionaries in our city, to pull away, to dig in deep in the Word, to dig in deep in relationship with each other. And uh, we are really grateful the Spirit this year sent us the Meisenbergs uh, to lead us and hang out with us, to enjoy Monroe, Abe and Jen and Julia and Luke and Noah. Uh, hope you have some time to say hey to them before they leave and head back. Um, and we've spent the last day and a half digging deep in the, to the health of our souls, the health of our hearts, how that's got to be good, right, and in order for us to see mission happen. So if we're going to be a church of disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be a church of missional communities that launch new missional communities to reach our region and beyond, if we're going to be a church plant that plants churches in places like Oak Cliff, then it has to flow from a heart that's been transformed and it is being renewed continually by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, by this relationship with Jesus. And uh, we have to continually be filled and satisfied and captivated by Jesus and His gospel. And so we set time together this weekend to learn and discuss and pray and apply these deep, life-changing truths to realize that God made us with a soul that is every bit as real as our bodies, and that shows up in ways like our emotions that must be identified and articulated to be able to gauge the health of our soul and know where we're at. And one of the important indicators of the health of our soul are our emotions, we spent time digging deep into the reality that before we go do things for Jesus, we have to slow down and realize and rest in the reality that we are already united with Jesus. And He is the source of all of our life. And we're continually abiding in Him in order to produce fruit. And that fruit comes from the result of abiding in Jesus. And then last night, we were reminded of the love of our Father in Heaven. And how necessary it is to receive our identity and affirmation from Him above anyone or anything else. And we've recorded all three sessions. We, we're shared links. We can share links if you need them. We hope you dive in uh, more. We hope you dive in uh, for the first time if you weren't there this weekend or missed a session. Especially the one from last night. Such life-changing truth and understanding who we are as dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven. If you've been with The Crossing long, you've heard us say that a lot. But after last night, I think we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more that our Father wants us to know, uh, knowing Him as Abba and Dad. And so I want to offer one more prayer from the weekend, just a prayer of gratitude for the grace of God, the work that He's done in us, the good work that He's done in us, as well as gratitude for the, the Meisenbergs and pray over them as they head home. Father, we are so grateful. You are so good. You love us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. You are so for us. And I thank you for the ways in which you have helped us to see that even more this weekend. And I'm grateful for what we know is coming as you continually, continually work this out in us. We ask that the good work you began that you continued, we know will be brought to completion, will be done for your glory, in, in and through the, the crossing, and in and our region and beyond. We thank you for Abe and his family, 
the gift of your grace that they were to us this weekend. We pray you continue blessings on them as they settle in in the south, uh, that you would continue to allow uh, fruit to be born as they abide in you, that the love for you, the love for each other, uh, the way you're shaping and forming them would just multiply. May you keep them safe as they travel home. And uh, may you continue to use them there in Huntsville. And bless our time together this morning, Father. Let this time in your word be good. May we receive what you have for us. May we respond as your grace allows. And may Christ be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Our next question in our Asking for a Friend series actually has a strong tie-in to what we spent time on this weekend. The question is, why is there only one way to heaven, and why is Jesus that way? This refers to what is normally called the exclusivity of Christ. And when we talk about our souls being satisfied and being emotionally healthy, when we talk about abiding in Christ, when we talk about knowing who we are and our identity as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, all of that is centered in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All those realities flow from one entity, the Most High God who created all things, who sent his son, his only son, son from above, to provide a way back to him in order for our souls to be saved and for us to thrive in health, in order for us to abide and rest in this son, Jesus, in order for us to be adopted into his family as dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, co-heir and brother of Christ. Now, from the perspective of those outside the church, the people of God this assertion that Jesus alone is the way, the only way to salvation and way out of God's wrath and damnation, it seems maybe so limited in creativity. Really? Like God made all of this and he just made one way? Or if he's really loving as you say that he is loving, why would he only make one way? Why wouldn't he make more ways to include more people if he is as loving as you say? But when you really understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you realize there's no other way because there's no other person like Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And it's not really a question of why didn't God make more ways, but why did he even make one way? When you understand the rebellion of the angels, for instance, cast out of heaven, no redemption plan for them, Lucifer and the demonic forces that we're familiar with today. And when man and woman, our parents in the garden, rebelled against God, why did he set in motion a plan he had from before the, the formation of the world to purchase our redemption, to bring us back? And in total amazement, he did. And in total gratitude that the way was made through Jesus that is so secure, it actually accomplishes our salvation. And we can't mess it up. and saves us now and forever from God's wrath. So let's walk through uh, some other questions that will help us answer this primary question. Number one, does the Bible teach that entering into heaven or being saved from hell is only through Jesus? Or, or is this one of those doctrines that kind of is mentioned in the Bible and the church has made a big deal out of it because we want to consolidate power or control the message? Or is this clear in Scripture? Well, it's pretty clear. It's actually very clear. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son the only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave this one and only Son, Son from above, so that eternal life would come 
to those who believe in that Son, Him. Nothing else is added. John would later say in John 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, implied in Him, you may have life in His name. No other name, no other object of our faith, object of our belief. This idea of belief in Jesus shows up almost a hundred times in the Gospel of John alone. And it's always this idea, believing in Jesus, faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. Now we're in the Bible Belt South, and so we have to constantly emphasize that belief isn't just a one-time intellectual decision that has no lasting impact in your life today. Belief in Jesus isn't like buying an insurance policy for the future. Once you purchase the policy, make a decision for Jesus, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, then it really doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life, you're covered. You just got to make that one transaction with Jesus. We have to understand that when the New Testament talks about belief and faith, it's ongoing, continual, placing the full weight of your life on someone. It's pushing all your chips to the middle of the table and saying, I'm all in on one person, Jesus. As the source of my life now and my life eternal, Jesus is the treasure buried in a field. The man went and sold everything he had to go to buy the the field to get the treasure. That's faith and life and trusting in Jesus. For us in the city in Monroe, it's not have you ever believed in Jesus or did you make a decision for Jesus or do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's almost everyone. For us in our context is, is Jesus precious to you? Is Jesus your treasure for which you've sold everything to have? Is he the king of your life who has your heart? That's what belief and faith and trust in Jesus, as the Bible speaks of it, is. Other passages that help us see salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. John 14, Jesus on the night of his arrest, just hours before the crucifixion, tells his closest disciples to believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you and take you with me. And then he says, you, you, uh, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, who's always looking for a map, Thomas says, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds in verses 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip pipes up, just show us the Father. That's all we need. Okay, then show us the Father. And Jesus responds, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Something that no Jewish rabbi in the first century would have ever said unless it was true. Jesus would have been 100% wrong in equating himself with the Father unless he was 100% right. And he was. And he is. The Gospels are filled with Jesus saying these kinds of things about himself, equating himself with God. No other religious leader ever claimed for themselves. No other person in the Bible claimed this for themselves, despite how holy or virtuous they, they may appear at times. Jesus alone has this self-understanding and self-perception. 
And as C.S. Lewis famously put it, when you take all that Jesus claimed about himself into account, the only conclusion is not that he's just a nice man or a good teacher. The only conclusion is that he is a lunatic, he's off his rocker, or he's a con man, a liar, just the worst that history has ever seen, or he is, in fact, Lord. He is who he said he is, king of the universe. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Hallelujah. Romans 10, verse 9 through 17, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that what he has heard from us? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus, again, is the center of all of that. Everything hinges on Jesus and what he has done. That's just a sampling of Bible pa biblical passages, but the Bible speaks with one voice. Jesus alone is the Redeemer, the seed of the woman who's come to crush the head of the serpent, first promise in Genesis 3, and the one for whom he will return as triumphant king with scars in his hands and his side that we are crying out in the last chapter of the Bible, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, return and make all things right and all things new. You can... Some may say, well, I could just take a list of commands or rules from the Bible and say, well, I don't really need Jesus. If I just follow these rules or commands, I can be a good person. I can be a Christian. I can look just like you look. And if you did that, you, you probably would have a pretty good life and look like a pretty good person. But you wouldn't be a Christian. Because you can't be a Christian apart from Jesus. You can't just follow what Jesus says. You believe in who he is and what he's done. That's how we turn into Christians, little Christ, a term of mockery or derision in the first century. Look at all these little Christ running around following this guy, Jesus. Yes, yes, we are, because he's everything. He is our life. He is our joy. He is our hope. And it's only through Jesus. Second question, is Christianity alone exclusive? The Bible says Jesus alone is the way of salvation, is Christianity the only religion like this? Are we the only ones who make exclusive claims? And the reality is every single religion, every worldview eventually is exclusive. If you dig into it enough to understand it, everyone eventually gets to a point where they will say, this is the right way and anything that contradicts us is the wrong way. So the claim that seemingly is most inclusive, the claim of the pluralist that all roads lead to the same God, he just goes by others name, other names, is exclusive to anyone who doesn't agree with that. Other major world religions, Islam, Judaism, all claim exclusivity. Eventually, their way is right, other ways are wrong. Even naturalistic atheism makes exclusive claims that elevate science and logic and reason above faith and a belief. So they're exclusive of those. So it's not that Christianity alone is exclusive because we center everything in Jesus. 
and his gospel, it's everyone's exclusive at some point. Let's put everything on the table and examine it. Let's poke it and prod it and see which one holds up. Which one is, is uh, the most attested to? Which one um, has, uh, answers the biggest questions of life the best? Which one has the historical uh, uh, verifiability of, like Jesus has, in his resurrection, his life, and his, and his res- uh, death? Which one is founded on a person who not only claimed to be God in the flesh, but, but has the best historical records that indicate he was crucified as a criminal even though he was innocent? His closest followers went from hiding to boldly proclaiming all over the Roman Empire that he was not in dead, but in fact alive. Whose message is a message of grace and the gift of salvation you receive, and not your effort on your part to earn or pay for your salvation, or work for your salvation. Our forgiveness for all of your sins that you don't have to pay for, or pay the penalty for, or pay a fine for, because this man Jesus paid for it all. No other belief system has this at its core. Only Jesus in the gospel. You see, the issue of exclusivity isn't really the hardest aspect of this question for us to answer as Christians because eventually everyone is exclusive. The hardest aspect of this question is, what about those who've never heard the name of Jesus? Does God save them? Because there's a part of us as humans that just doesn't seem fair that he would not save people who've never heard his name, who've never had a chance to believe and respond to the gospel. Now, we, we believe God is merciful when it comes to children and those with uh, mental health issues that uh, have cognitive inabilities to understand certain things or understand their sinfulness just cognitively. We believe God is merciful and saves those. But what about those who can understand but never hear? It's a hard question to answer, not because it's intellectually difficult to grasp, but because it's emotionally difficult to accept. Ephesians 2 tells us we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. Romans 1 tells us God has so revealed his divine nature and creation that no man will be able to stand before him one day and say, I didn't know you existed. Last night we were walking out of the dining room into the gym and Timothy looks up and says, look at that big guy. And Jack Thomas was walking ahead of him, and, you know, Jack, the son of Todd and Terry, he's bigger than Timothy. But I was like, that's an odd thing to say. And they, Kelly pointed out to me, he was saying, look at that pink sky. He was looking up through the windows in the top of the gym. <laughs> this beautiful sunset, I totally didn't notice. And my three-year-old son can see and testify to the beauty of God's creative order in nature. He can bear witness to, man. Good job, Dad. That's amazing. All we've seen is gray for like a month. And look what you did tonight. Um, All of mankind has that knowledge that there is a God, His divine attributes revealed to creation. This knowledge of God, Romans 1 tells us, for most people doesn't lead to salvation, but instead to rebellion and sin, so that all mankind is born sinful and in rebellion against the Creator, worshiping the creation and not the Creator. And salvation is only through hearing the good news of Jesus as the rest of Romans lays out for us. And apart from that, there is no hope for salvation. If there were another way to be saved from God's wrath apart from believing in Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have worried to send us on his mission once he left. To go into all nations and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. If they're going to believe through some other way than Jesus, then just 
let them believe. Why send us with this message of the gospel? He wouldn't have worried to say, you will be my witnesses as you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They'll eventually hear something or respond to the revelation they have received, and God will be merciful and save them (laughs) apart from Jesus. But it's not true you can be saved apart from Jesus. So he sends us, sends his people, and has been doing that for thousands of years, to go and proclaim and share the gospel. That's why we're on this life or death mission, to make Jesus known to as many people as possible. And and sometimes it's like a a mutual friend of mine and Jeff's, Scotty McDowell, who's an evangelist and a a missionary in places like Mongolia, Malawi, and India, has been for 20 or 30 years. And he's doing some work in Mongolia, traveling along with his travel partner, stops at a roadside cafe. They see a man riding a motorcycle across this barren landscape, and they begin to talk to him and share the gospel with him through creation to Christ, a very common way to share the gospel in that part of the world. And uh, this man uh, hears their entire presentation of Jesus as the gospel, and he kind of smirks and says, I always knew he was real, I just didn't know his name. And God connected the dots that he had been already preparing in this man's heart to hear the gospel on that day. Sometimes it looks like that. Because God is doing this work ahead of us. And we come in with a message and we, we kind of connect the last piece of the puzzle. And Jesus has sent his people to share this message far and wide. And what's so incredible is for the last 2,000 years, this gospel is getting into every nook and cranny of the earth among all people. So that one day, the Bible says, there will be a gathering like this, but it won't just be a bunch of mostly Anglo-Americans. It will be people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's happening, and we get to be a part of this. He's sending us. But, but it still means that literally every day, every day, billions of people are waking up, enjoying the common grace of God, enjoying their families and working hard and laughing and loving and being loved and eating good food and going to sleep at night, and one day they're dying and they're entering into a Christless eternity unless they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that reality is what drives what we do because some of those people are here in the Monroe area and some of those people are other places that our Father will send us and some of those people are places that other brothers and sisters of ours are going and we pray for them and we give so they can go and we go ourselves and support others who are going until we breathe our last. It's what our life is about, this reality. It breaks our heart and it drives our mission to see Jesus known and made famous far and wide. The Bible clearly teaches that the good news of Jesus, trusting in Jesus, is the only way to heaven and God's eternal state of rest and peace and to avoid God's wrath and eternal separation from God and His love. And this exclusive path is unique to Christianity, not because we take an exclusive position, everyone does, but because we take a Jesus position, it's only through Him. And so the question that we want to deal with now is, what is so special about Jesus? What's so special about Jesus that we make it all about him? I mentioned some things, but I want to focus on one more found in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet of the Lord was given a vision of God and himself that I'm going to read. And I don't want you to turn there. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Because I'd like you to use your sanctified imagination to try as much as possible, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. As much as we can, see what he saw. It's 740 B.C., you're a prophet of God, embarking on a long ministry of service that's going to elevate you to places of prominence 
unlike anybody ever experienced in his time. You're God's mouthpiece for the king and the nation. The king has just died after a 10-year bout with leprosy because he flouted the holiness of God. And in that year, Isaiah was given a vision. So imagine this in your heart and your mind. It may help you close your eyes, what Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. It's hard for us to see what Isaiah saw. We don't have categories for seraphim. Fiery beings. Probably none of us have been in a temple. Maybe some of us have been in an earthquake, but not if you've lived around here most of your life. Sometimes our house or a building that we're in will shake when a train or a large truck passes closely by. But have you ever been in the presence of a person whose voice shook the building? The whole earth being full of his glory, something that big and that large, it fills the whole earth simultaneously. Even the earth is only covered by 70, 80% water. Maybe air, but you can't see air or atoms or molecules. Maybe we think of light. The light only covers half the planet at a time. And we know from the vision of the eternal state, God's glory is different than the sun because there will be no shadows in heaven. If you can imagine something so all-encompassing simultaneously, it just takes up everything. There's no space for anything. And all of that is rooted in these three words. Holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God that's repeated three times in Scripture. And we have ways in the English language to emphasize what is of highest value, but the biblical writers in the original language would just repeat what was of highest value. To repeat it once was a big deal. So when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I tell you, that was a stop the presses, everyone listen to what he's about to say. It was Jesus equating himself with the authority of Scripture, which only he could do. To say it three times 
It just doesn't happen in the Bible except here. And when you consider things like how great his love is, and the Bible never says, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God. Or how majestic and how powerful he is. And the Bible never says, powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Set apart, distinct, otherness. There's nothing and there's no one in all the universe who occupies this place. Not even the universe occupies this space, but it's something he created. It holds in his hand. We might lack the capacity to really see what Isaiah saw because God gave him this. But when you consider Isaiah, prophet of God, one of, if not the most respected person in the entire nation of Israel and this time and throughout his ministry his intellect seen in his writings equal to no one surpasses him in the scriptures it's like an old testament paul paul in fact quotes isaiah a ton the prophet among prophets when we see his reaction it might help us get a little closer feel to grasp what he was seeing when he says in verse five and i said woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts prophets would often speak in oracles of a blessing of prosperity this is good news or they would speak in oracles of judgment Woe. So this is, this is not Isaiah saying woe, like W-O-A-H, like we say when we text people. This is Isaiah saying, this is not good. I don't belong here. I am lost. The King James Version is probably actually better. I am undone. Or some of your translations, I am ruined. R.C. Sproul, in his famous sermon on this passage, says this is a state of psychological disintegration Isaiah is experiencing. We know uh, integrity, we know that word. Integrity is things that are held together in a cohesive way so that's always the same. So what you see in public is what you see in private. What you see around this group of people is what you see around that group of people. We say that person has integrity. Well, this is psychologically falling apart nothing's held together i am undone i am ruined i don't belong in this place it's over for me isaiah is in this state of disintegration falling apart breaking apart with one glimpse of the holiness of god isaiah gets full insight into the depths of his sins with one glimpse it's not just Isaiah. The Bible is full of these reactions to God's glory and holiness on full display. Moses on Mount Sinai. Samson's parents, when they see the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, we must, we're going to die because we saw this angel of the Lord. Peter, Paul, and James. Peter, John, and James on the Mount of Transfiguration. John in the 
Revelation chapter 1, when he receives this vision and sees Christ in all of his glory. I, I fell as before him as one dead. The reality of God's holiness, God's godness, exposes the reality of our sinfulness. And even a man like Isaiah is undone, falling apart at the seams. We're expert sin justifiers, sin comparers, and sin shruggers. We're great at giving reasons and excuses for why we sin. We're great at comparing our sins to others that we deem more sinful and patting ourselves on the back because at least we're not as bad as they are. And we're great at shrugging off our sins because after all, no one's perfect. Which is true. But do you see Isaiah adopting any of those methods to put himself back together? Woe is me for I am undone, but hey, nobody's perfect, right? There are no hiding places. There are no valid excuses. There's no one else to compare ourselves to. There's no shrugging of the shoulders in the presence of a holy God. If you know the passage, you know what's coming, but don't jump to the conclusion and not feel this tension between a holy God and a sinful man. Because if we were in Isaiah's shoes, our reaction would have been identical. I don't belong here. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The lips, one of the most sensitive places on the body with the softest tissue combined with this high concentration of nerve endings. We've all burned our hand. We've all burned the roof of our mouth. But I doubt anyone in here has put a hot coal to their lips. If you think about it for a second, you can begin to imagine the immediate blistering and damage done to the skin. And this fire, this picture of cleansing and healing and cauterizing, stopping the flow of sin, a, a fresh start like the burning down of the undergrowth of a forest, the fire atones. It takes away his guilt so that his lips could now be used to proclaim the good news of verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. How does he go from being undone? Let's get on mission. Let's go. How does that happen so quickly? The atoning, guilty, guilt-taking away work of God. Amen. And we know what all this is pointing to. We know what's being re referenced here in this passage. Who can solve the problem of Isaiah? Who can bridge the, ga the gap between a holy God and sinful man? 1 Timothy 2, 3-5. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Revelation 5, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty voice proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break his seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. Isaiah wasn't hopping up to saying, I can do that. Moses wasn't hopping up. Paul wasn't hopping up. No one was able to open it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more for your sins. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the right root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And it goes on in verse 6 to say, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Look, there's a lion. John looks and he sees a lamb as one who had been slain, worthy to open the scroll. John writes in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Just above that, John had quoted the rest of this passage of Isaiah 6 and seemed to be implying that when Isaiah saw his glory, he saw Jesus. No one else fits the description. Who is the only man who was God in the flesh? Who is the only man who lived a perfect, sinless life? Fulfilling the law in every way succeeding, never having an off day, a life that we fail at multiple times a day, who's the only man who at the end of his life suffered the, the cross of a criminal, even though he never committed a crime, and even the courts of his day said he's innocent. I'm washing my hands of this guy. Who's the only one who died the death that you and I deserve to die? Lovingly, sacrificially substituting himself in our place to take the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve. And we, in turn, not only get cleansing and forgiveness and atonement, we get credit for his righteous life. Credit for things that we don't do. He did them. So that in Christ, Christ in us, we stand before our Father in heaven always as holy, blameless children, sons and daughters of our Father all the time. There's never one moment in Christ, Christ in you, that you stand before him not pleasing not received. Only Jesus did this. And when it's offered so freely to us as a gift of His grace, why would we want any other way? Everything has been done. So as the worship team comes back up and before I pray, I just want you to take a minute. You may need to close your eyes to do this. And just listen to what the Spirit is saying to you right now. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you right now. Where is the Spirit speaking comfort, encouragement, help? Where is the Spirit speaking conviction? Where is He speaking calling or challenge? Just listen.
way is narrow through Jesus alone, but the way is not powerless. And it is open and available to all who would hear and turn from their sins and trust in King Jesus and his sacrificial work. As a church of missional communities sent to our region and to the nations with this message, we will only be effective as we rest and abide and proclaim and make it all about him. As our hearts are captivated by him, as our works are energized by him, as he is more and more our treasure for whom we sacrifice and give everything to enjoy. Guys, if your heart and soul is not in that place this morning, guess what? Jesus is here. He's here. And he's ready to embrace you this morning. Would you turn from your sins? Would you trust in Jesus and come alive in him today? Father, we thank you for what you have done through your son. We ask you to come and work, do deep, good work in us today. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you.